welcome to the very first episode of Not My Monkeys. If you're here, it either means that you love circus and you can't wait to hear about all those helpful hints and no-nonsense talk about the art form that you adore, or you have no idea about circus and you want to get a head start seeing as your grandma bought you those Cirque du Soleil tickets for Christmas. Either way, you are in the right place. We're here to hold up the edge of that big top canvas and let you wiggle inside, even though they said there were no tickets left. We'll hold your hand as you walk the tight wire, and we'll even tell you when to duck as you're crossing the juggling hall at convention so that you don't get a tomahawk throw to the temple. We'll be revealing things to you that you didn't even know about this absolutely bonkers and beautiful world. It's circus. Hello, I'm Ruby, and welcome to the first episode of Not My Monkeys. And I'm Rosie. It's great to have you guys listening in. So just to let you know a little bit about us two before we begin, um, so my co-host is Rosie Kelly. Woo, that's me! And she is a juggler from Cumbria. She now lives in Leeds, and she's been teaching circus for nearly 10 years now. Yeah, that's teaching a lot of kids, a lot of special needs groups, and adults as well in, like, circus workshops. And now she has a super cool job. She's working as a giggle doctor, which is clowning with kids in hospitals. I love that job so much. It's so Mm. much fun. And my co-host is Ruby. Hello, that's me. Hooray! (laughs) You are from Brighton. Yes. But you currently live in Bristol, and that's because you recently graduated from Circomedia. That's the Circus University, one of two here in the UK. And you graduated with a BA in Contemporary Circus and Physical Theatre. I did. What did you specialise in? Uh, Trapeze was my thing. Awesome. That's good. Uh, You do a lot of teaching, and you're really into sort of circus practices and sort of accessibility through circus. And you write for the Circus Diaries. Which, funnily enough, so do you. What a kawinky dink. <laughs> we both do that. So that's actually how we met. Um, and we decided to make a podcast when we were both writing for the Circus Diaries at the Edinburgh Fringe. And if you don't know what the Circus Diaries is, get online, check it out. It's a really cool website. It's run by our very good friend, Kate. It's got loads of reviews from circus shows, traditional and contemporary. It's a great resource if you just want to know more about the circus shows that's been going on for the last five or six years. Yeah, check it out. Um, So enough about us. Let's talk about what you can expect in the shows. The show. So in every episode of Not My Monkeys, you'll hear us talking about circus shows and discussing hot topics and big issues in the industry. Oh, and also in every episode, you will get to hear an interview. We're going to interview someone interesting from the world of circus. That's artists, directors, performers, but also teachers, historians, circus researchers, street performers, everyone in between as well. Yep. And to wrap it all up, we'll let you know some fun history and facts about circus. I love fun facts and my favourite part. (laughs) So that's enough about us. Let's get on with the first episode. Let's get on with the show. (laughs) Take it away! So, speaking of circus... Which we do all the time on this podcast... (laughs) Rosie, what would you say some of your first experiences of circus shows are that stick in your head? Um, So, when I was younger, my experiences of circus would always be traditional circuses. That's things like that would go around in big tops, touring circuses, and also Blackpool Tower Circus, which is one of my favourite circuses ever. It's great. But everything that I would see would be very much in a ring with different acts. There would be the classic clowns, aerial acts, jugglers, and the exactly the kind of music that you would expect to go with it. Everyone having mm. popcorn, and having those cool like light saber sword things that you can wave around. It was all very much one kind of experience. Mm. It wasn't until I was much older that I would start to see a lot more contemporary and get way more into juggling kind of circus. 
And did, do you, would you say that watching those sort of circuses in Blackpool and things made you want to do it? Um, I want to say no, uh, but maybe it did in some kind of weird way. Uh, I'm really, really into film. I'm really into like the visual storytelling of things. And I actually think mm. that seeing a lot of juggling videos and circus videos, promo things and acts made me want to do it a lot more. It's all like this visual, like, beaming it into people's eyeballs that I really like. <laughs> That's the kind of thing that gets me into circus. Oh, that makes sense. It does make sense. Mm. It does. It's almost <laughs> like I planned this conversation. <laughs> um, go on then. What about you? What's what's significant in circus that you remember made you want to get into it? Uh, well, I also started very young, um, which was mainly just because I was an energetic kid that wanted to hang off things. Yeah, you were like seven when you started training yeah, for circus. Yeah, so, but in terms of a piece that sticks in my head, I think um, the Occam's Razor show, The Mill, um, really sticks in my head because it was really exciting at the time. They have all this unusual equipment, ropes, like wooden cogs turning and this big hamster wheel that they mm. can run in um, and our youth circus got to do a workshop with them so I got to have a go in it which was very exciting for me as a child uh, probably still would be now um, and yeah just really like broadened my perspective on what circus could be and look like yeah and actually Occam's Razor is a company that we got to interview at the London International Mime Festival fancy that what a coincidence <laughs> and it's a well-established UK touring company yeah and they also went to Circomedia actually which is where they were formed yeah, um, and I think one of the things that I always remember about their shows is that they have a very unique piece of equipment that's kind of like the star of the show in a way. Like, mm. everything is about that bit of equipment, aerial equipment that they've made, and they often invent it themselves or build it themselves. Yeah, and they perform it as an ensemble, sort of as an exploration of that equipment often. Yeah, um, and it's always very melancholy. The things that they create, I, I seem to find, always have the same kind of feel. They're very... Um, yeah, like quite natural and minimalistic, but mm. I want to say, you used the phrase stripped bare, like you can always see the rigging, you can always see everything that's yeah, going on. Yeah, there's no sort of glitz and glamour. Mm. Um, no and sequins in this kind no. of stuff. <laughs> and their most recent show um, that we were talking to them about is called This Time, um, and in that show they have um, four performers, so they have Faith, who's 60, Lee, who's 13, and then Alex Harvey and Charlotte Mooney, who are the creative directors of Occam's Razor, um, and are the people that we got to interview. So here it is. <laughs> we did Tipping Point in Edinburgh, and then two years later we went back uh, with this time. And Tipping Point had gone down really well. And then we went back, and we were in the same venue with this time, and... The process of making this time for us felt really similar to the process of making all of our other work in the past. We just went through the same, same kind of uh, yeah ritual, the same kind of processes that we've that we've always gone through. But the show came out quite differently, um, partly because of the different cast we were working with, but partly also because we were increasingly putting emphasis on seeing if spoken word could be in the shows which hadn't sort of made the cut in previous shows. But mm. in this one, it, it seemed to really fit, so we did put it in. But this guy came up afterwards and sent, said, uh, can you bring Tipping Point back? After This is after seeing this time. He walked out <laughs> this time and said, could you bring Tipping Point back? 
And I said, oh, actually, we might be bringing it back. Yeah, we might be retouring it again. He went, because I just thought that was really disappointing. <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> and that was it. And literally said that, looked me in the eye with a very disappointed face on and walked off down the steps. <laughs> wow, that's honest. Yeah. You get that's that brutal. It's yeah. really interesting. Much more, I've noticed it in the last sort of two years, maybe even in the last year, people are brutally honest to you after shows mm. and okay. seek you out to tell you what you think. And I, I've got a theory it's to do with like online reviewing, that there's right. been some kind of yeah. cultural shift that people... Think they that feel they can, they can directly give you. Yeah, yeah. I feel oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so it's kind of, which although occasionally painful, mm. is great actually because it's made like the reaction to this time mostly has been kind of mind-bendingly warm. Like we've had people coming up and literally sort of weeping in our arms after the show, and people have mm. had very strong reactions to it, and all like the vast majority of our reviews have been like by far the most glowing reviews we've ever had and you know stars and all of that but still we had um, a, a review on front row that was just like brutal and they were like it just does this show just doesn't work and that's interesting to really have such split yeah opinions yeah and I think I think that's probably true of most art yeah. like I think there's yeah. so much that people don't for some reason, don't um, uh, like find it difficult to accept that like a lot of this stuff is taste, and you'll make a show mm. and it will really work for some people and really connect with them, and other people will just be like, "Mate, I just thought it was a bit slow and boring." I think the best response we ever got after a show was it wasn't an Occam show. We were part of this um, opera that the ENO um, did, and Improbable directed it. Um, uh, Phelan and Julian did it together, and. Uh, we went out to dinner with a friend that had come to see it afterwards. It's a it's a really epically long opera about Gandhi, and it's sort of a meditation on struggle. Um, wow. <laughs> and uh, uh, this guy that came to see it um, afterwards said, I really loved it. So the whole thing is set during Gandhi's lifetime in South Africa, most of it. No, yeah, it's all in South Africa. And it's Gandhi it's became very, politically enlightened in South Africa. Okay. Very smooth. <laughs> it's the early part of his life. And it's very kind of incredibly slow-moving, uh, evolving images and stuff, um, all set during that time. And he said, I loved it, but the, the bit when you brought the fax machine on... You pushed it on across the stage, and then when you pushed it off the front and into the orchestra pit, it just seemed like it was slightly anachronistic and didn't seem to fit with the rest of the show. And we said, "That that doesn't happen in the opera. What? I don't, I don't, that, I don't know <laughs> what, what that machine, is that you're yeah. referring to." <laughs> and he said, "No, no, no. That you know that bit." And was sort of, sort of looking to the other people there for kind of validation and. And it turned out that he'd fallen asleep uh, <laughs> during the opera and oh, had wow. this amazing dream, where, <laughs> uh, which is this very dreamy piece. <laughs> That's so funny. Totally, and he was outraged that we were suggesting that he'd fallen asleep during it. <laughs> and he was totally convinced, and he tried to convince everyone else that it had happened. <laughs> That's funny. So I, I have said in the past that if you watch mm. something without words, it goes through a different bit of your brain. Like I think you process it differently i i think that's true i think that is true um it allows you to be in a world where you're not instantly concentrating on something literal mm. and you're not trying to balance or trying to trying to 
equate something literal with something metaphorical, you can just settle into a metaphorical world. Yeah, yeah. and also I think we found that, yeah, like there was an ambiguity of meaning in the nonverbal that really appealed to us. Hmm. Um, but then, with but then, I got pregnant, and while I was pregnant, I couldn't perform physically. I went and did the storytelling course. Um, which was a really full-on three-month intensive training and was amazing and, like, totally life-changing. Mm. And it taught me, like, oh, there's a... I knew, sort of before I did it, I'd done a few short courses at this place, um, um, and I sort of knew, oh, this this is... It's not a script, and it's it's a, a style of talking and a, that I think has got something really in common with circus. It's, like, a very sort of open... Um, I, I, I'm sort of loath to say the word authentic, but kind of, but has a sort of ream of like the, the the storyteller is sort of playing themselves at the same time as telling a story, and they step in and out of that role in a way that I think circus performance does. Like it steps in and out of it a lends reality quite naturally to that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Way. So I think I thought, oh, these things go quite well together. So we also spoke to companies still hungry about their show Raven, um, which focuses on being a circus mother and prejudices that they come up against and being really honest about sort of rejecting the idea of being this perfect mother, um, which and you also speak about a lot of your personal experiences in this show um, about being a parent. And was that difficult? And do you think it's important to share that? Um, I was also in a show called Me Mother, which was about oh. circus performers who were either pregnant or had had children a few years oh, okay. ago when she was six months old. So it was really interesting. There's like a, a lot of interest in that, I think, which is really interesting. And, and people that were trying to work out if it was possible for them to still be a circus performer and have a child. It was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was sort of the, the whole spectrum. It was the questioning end of the spectrum yeah. as well. Mm. I think there's, I mean, t- certainly physically it's really... So there's a, there's a physical thing, which was also, I think, part of the impetus of making this show was we got to 40 and everybody just kind of, well, even, no, at 30, people started asking when we were going to retire. <laughs> and that sort of, and also when I got pregnant, it was just a universal assumption, like, you're 35, you're pregnant, you, there's no way that you're going to be able to perform again. And even now, like, I, so I'm now 40, our daughter's four I'm definitely the strongest I've ever been like yeah and the most technically proficient and I think getting stronger and more technically mm. proficient and that's been I've had to overcome so much self-doubt in that because of everybody else's expectations and it's quite hard to because you you know you want to be honest with yourself and you're like am I just being an idiot and even some physios you will go in and will say well well you know, you're getting on. Whereas other physios, oh, wow. like, yeah. yeah, like the best one was James um, Wellington, uh, who was an amazing physio that used to work at NCCA. I remember him mm. saying that it really saddens him that he sees people as they grow older stopping to perform because what they have in them is a, a deep knowledge of, sort of technique and pathways. Um, so, yeah, I find that whole thing really interesting about like physically what you're able to do. And um, and it's been really empowering to realise that there is also parenting, and especially if a small child, is something that gives you strength. Like you're knackered, mm. but it also makes you strong. Like you never stop moving. It is every night. It's an improvisation in the way that um, 
Phelan, when we were working with Phelan McDermott from Improbable, he was saying you shouldn't try and do it perfectly. Don't try and perfect your performance because a perfect performance in some ways isn't very interesting because there's no vulnerability in it or uh, uh, there's no, there's no, you're not Nothing surprising yourself. Yeah. 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 So uh, I try and do it differently every night. And I think that is something that helps you try, rediscover because you're constantly surprising yourself. So, and surprising each other. And I think that is something that helps keep it fresh and helps bring that quality of discovery every night. Mm. And I think that is something that keeps the emotion alive. Pretty terrifying to think, oh, what are we going to do next? And how is, and it's that constant pressure to, to make something better. I remember John Ellingsworth once saying, uh, Occam's Razor, a hundred things I can do with a scaff pole. <laughs> and be like, oh no! <laughs> he figured it out! Right in the feelings. <laughs> not my scaffolding <laughs> That's our secret. <laughs> and then you ticked off number 100. <laughs> what do you do, what do, you do then? Uh, no, what are we going to do? <laughs> um, yeah. There's a funny... The thing about it getting easier... What's got easier... I was going to say this before, but... Um, it's to to trust that you can be um, intuitive and instinctive, and that's that's not being vague in a cop out. That that's like a really like genuinely valuable place to just be. Trusting your instincts more. Yeah, and, and without justifying guessing. it, just kind of going, I feel like we should be doing this, and uh, and then following that, even if you're not really clear about why or where it's leading, that that will be revealed. And then later, you know, you need to be rigorous, but rigour can happen later so given that do you have any advice for new circus companies that are just starting out one of the hardest things with that question and it's something that we've been asked a few times is that uh we as we've as we've become more established we can spend longer making the work so i would love to be able to say just don't rush it, take your time and trust that the interesting things will come and trust in the interesting things. That's quite hard to say to a company that are just starting out and are having to make work quickly and without a big budget and without that necessarily that time to to allow stuff to evolve slowly. Without the established kind of brand. Exactly. Well, do. exactly. And, and the funding that we've got. Yeah. Um, yeah. But part of that is... The thing that we've always relied on with ourselves is to say there are things that stop you and there are things that make you go, that, ah, yes, that thing, that's one of them. And you sort of get arrested in that moment and go, ah, yeah, I don't necessarily know what it is, but I know that that's right. And and to collect those things. And if you've got a collection of those things and you feel like there is something inherent within all of them or to find the thing that is inherent within the things that go together and then just work out how they fit together Mm. the thing I would say as well is to um the thing I found really hard especially when you're starting is that your first piece it's really difficult to accept that it's a marathon and not a sprint and that your first piece will have some really good things in it but it won't be the piece that you make that defines you that you've been thinking about kind of for three or four years <coughs> it's inevitably going to be a piece you make and some bits will work and some bits won't work and then it will go away 
and then you'll make another one and then you'll make another one and then you'll make another one and that like really the worth of an artist is in the breadth of all of their work and their development mm. not in any single thing they make and it and that that is quite an easy thing to accept when you have made quite a lot but mm. when you're first starting you put so much pressure on this first bit having to be perfect and it just won't because none of them are they're yeah. all <laughs> in some way and that's that's all right it's really extraordinary and continually extraordinary to be part of an art form that's actually like new like contemporary circus and what can be done with it is is so i think at the beginning of what it's figuring out that it can do and obviously there's you know it's had a huge development in places like France, but still, like, you know, you're talking in the last 100 years compared to, like, ballet or mm. or, or music or... So, um, and it's so broad and it can it has so much space within it to go in so many different directions from, like, you know, Fraser Hooper clowning to burlesque to what we're doing, you know, to Pia. Like, it's just, like, so broad. And I love that about it. I think that's really... It's genuinely really exciting. It befuddles me how the general public like don't understand about it. They don't <laughs> or, go wild for or, it. Oh yeah, or like you, you but they do. Like that's the amazing thing. Like well, I think some of the shows we've made are pretty obscure and take a bit of daydreaming and dreaming into them and sometimes are quite slow in their pace, but most like quite often people will say oh I bought my brother-in-law who's a plumber and has no experience of theatre and I didn't know what he'd think about that and he loved it like and he was getting stuff from it so I think actually confronted with it, it it's an art form that communicates physically and can talk about subtle emotional things and thoughts and ideas but on this physical in this physical way that really touches people mm. I think it's the most extraordinary art form um I don't under yeah it, it I I imagine in a hundred years it'll be really mainstream and everyone will know about it but <laughs> I suspect that probably won't happen um, which is a yeah it's a shame to me that I still have to explain to people that I don't wear spangles and what it is yeah. but I will probably be doing that until I die and that's mm. okay it's a lot of freedom being in a niche art form there's a huge amount of freedom in it. Like, we can pretty much make what we like. No one tells us the boundaries of what we can make, and that's mm. amazing. Like, it's been incredible to be part of that. Hi there, it's Ruby here from Not My Monkeys podcast. I'm here to talk to you today about Drop Everything. Drop Everything is a new shop in Bristol that sells all sorts of circus props and toys. They have all of your usual circus props, like balls, clubs and Diablos, but they also have lots of fun toys like spinning plates, Rubik's Cubes and even Kendamas. It's located on the top floor of the galleries in Bristol, so do go and check it out. And whether you're a seasoned juggler or someone who's just giving it a go for the first time, they have really friendly staff who are professional jugglers and are really happy to take you through how to use each prop. We have an exclusive offer just for our listeners, so when you go, do make sure to use the phrase MONKEY10 when you pay to get 10% off whatever you buy. It's only going to be there until the 5th of April, so hurry and get there while you can, and like the page on Facebook at Drop Everything Shop to find out where they're going to be in the future. So just a quick reminder, that's monkey10 when you pay to get 10% off whatever you buy. Okay, thanks for listening, now back to the podcast. 
So at the time that we were interviewing Charlotte and Alex, it was just a few days before the official Brexit day. And I think it was fresh in our minds because it is something that's probably going to have a big impact on the arts and circus. Brexit is the UK leaving the European Union, uh, which means that freedom of movement is probably going to stop, or is likely to stop in some way. Mm. And already we've seen a lot being reported uh, about everybody needing visas in order to tour in Europe. So performers would each need a, a visa in order to go and perform in any kind of European Union show. And in terms of funding, uh, it's going to affect what sponsors what. A lot of funding for circus shows does come from the European Union as well, from the arts section. And it's also going to affect where companies will choose to tour. So you might not see uh, a lot of European circuses coming and touring in the UK anymore and vice versa. It does really rely a lot on people collaborating from lots of different places and this might just hamper that a little bit, I think. Yeah, it's worrying. And I, But at the moment, we don't know exactly what the impact will be and it won't be in effect until January 2021. Um, but I had spoken to Charlotte about it before and I thought she had some interesting things to say about it. Um, and given that as a company, Occam's Razor have toured a lot in the UK and Europe, I think they're speaking from a place of experience. So let's find out what they had to say on the subject matter of Brexit. So we're here with Occam's Razor, um, and I'm just going to ask a few difficult questions. <laughs> um, so by the time this podcast goes out, Brexit should have happened. Uh, how do you think that's going to affect the UK circus industry? Massively. I mean, <laughs> the thing about Brexit is, it, as with all industries, nobody actually knows mm. the depth at which it's going to affect it. Um, the one thing that I can say about touring circus, certainly for, for, for we're one of the few... Um, touring companies really that this this country has and we and we have a lot of experience in it and the thing that we we are able to tour in the UK um and to sustain that just just mm. about like it is financially in, an incredibly difficult thing to do and the vast majority of certainly theatre companies are not able to sustain that and if you talk to the arts council touring is in crisis everybody acknowledges that and certainly a model that we have had, and I think a lot of other companies had, is that you tour in Europe and you get paid a far, far higher fee than you do in England. Yeah. So you tour in Europe and you make some money and then you tour in the UK and you expect to lose money or just about break even. And so essentially, I think a lot of UK touring theatre is subsidised by companies doing gigs in Europe. And if that becomes less and less possible if to do... If that becomes then, less and less possible yeah. to do, then what does that mean for UK touring? So it's not just that you suddenly don't get that, those gigs, that not getting those gigs has a massive impact on, impact on how much you can afford to do in this country. Mm. We have seen... So how much it's going to affect us is interesting. So currently, for touring Belly of the Whale, which is our kind of international festival uh, piece that is going to have a lot more international touring... That we have a lot of pencils for this year, but no confirmed, like I think maybe two confirmed gigs. And the reason why is because everybody in Europe is waiting to see what's going to happen waiting with Brexit to, to yeah. find out. If it ends up that it's going to cost us a hell of a lot, it's going to cost a festival in Belgium or France a hell of a lot more money to have us than a company that's in Europe, then we're going to have to have something pretty special to make it worth their while. Yeah. Already you're finding that arts spending is cut across Europe as well so already their budgets are shrinking so it's just going to make a difficult situation a, a lot more difficult. It's just sad because we've 
it's been happening like gradually, gradually. There, there's a thing called Juntelentzirk, which is um, uh, in Western Europe. It's not called that anymore. Oh, it's, it's not called, called that anymore. It's uh, called Circus Now. Circus Next. Circus Next. Next. Well done. <laughs> uh, and it's it's a it's a way of getting funding to companies basically. And you you write an application, and then you go through this sort of heats process, and then gradually companies kind of get chosen, and then they get funded. Um, and when we start, when it started, or when when we first were involved in it, it's uh, there weren't any English companies in it. We were one of the first ones, and it uh, and it has become much more inclusive of of the UK. And now uh, that's gonna, I think that's gonna become more and more difficult. And it it was something that was happening, and Europe was getting interested. Mainland Europe was getting more interested in the UK circus, and. I think that is just going to be more and more difficult. It's less possible for them to bring us over. And it's it's more partly the cost of it and partly the uncertainty in terms of there's just the, this idea that there's going to be these huge delays at the tunnel and for ferries. They, they, they're not going to take a chance if they think they're going to book a company and then they're just not going to turn up. They're not going to make it if there's a six-day yeah. wait, you know, sitting in a queue at the, at the tunnel. Mm-hmm. So it's just increasing uncertainty and making that more difficult for for european promoters and festival bookers to to take that not risk on uk companies but to take that interest in them and also just really boring prosaic things like if we have to pay for a carnet on a van to go over which currently it looks like we will our profit margins are so small um, that you know, having to pay five hundred a grand to to get that carne, that's that's it. Yeah, that was what we were probably going to earn from that gig. <laughs> yeah, and if we you try know? and put if we try and put that cost onto the European festivals, that makes it even less appealing to them. And there's so many companies in Europe. There's just so many compared to in the UK <laughs> that they're just gonna. Why it's would just they gonna use be, us? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There, there's there's no need to to go the extra mile to get us over. But, yeah, you just have to see. Like, it is, we'll see what will happen. We are, having said that, and, you know, obviously being angry and disheartened by it, um, we are also natural optimists. <laughs> uh, we yeah. just are. So I remember last so, time I saw you, you said this Margaret Thatcher quote. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so the Margaret Thatcher quote is, I love artists. You give them money and they make art. You take away the money and they still make art. <laughs> but, it, I mean, there is a bit of a stoop. Like, if, funny enough, it also goes back to you say, like, why circus? Mm. Um, I felt like a total wanker when I felt, like, to self-identify as an artist. It took me a long time to be able to say, I am an artist. But I've come to accept that I have to do this it is a vocation. It's not actually a choice. It did actually choose me. I will always be making art. So mm. we will do it. We will still do it. And we will find a way to do it. I'm Alex Harvey. I'm Charlotte Mooney. We're Occam's Razor. And you're listening to Not My Monkeys podcast. So I've got a fun story for you. Oh, yeah? It's about circus. Okay, good. That's what I like to hear. It concerns a circus stunt the top three clowns of their time, public hysteria that's comparable to the Beatles, ah. four geese, geese, and a tragedy that ended it all. 
Okay. I am interested. I hope Please you would say tell that. me the story. <laughs> Before I start, though, uh, I'm just going to cite my sources. Uh, the information that I got today uh, was actually from a combination of an excellent lecture done by Gareth Davis. And he has a website as well called The Clown King, which you can check out online. Uh, I also used other websites like Clowns and Cannons or The Clowns Log. And I'd also want to say that if you want to check these sort of things out, go on the V&A website. That's a Victorian Albert Museum website. It has loads of stuff on about circus and things like this, if you're willing to shift through it all. Good tip. So let me set the scene for you. Okay. It's the 1800s. It's 1840, let's be a bit more precise. Specific. Yeah. <laughs> it's London to be precise as well. Uh, this Victorian is times? This is Victorian yes. times. Yeah, okay. it is. Well done. Now, there's like a bit of a divide going on in Victorian England at the moment. You've got a bunch of mega poor people dealing with famine and losing like their farming jobs to the mechanisation of things. Mm. You've also got the mega rich people that's benefiting from the Industrial Revolution and just like exploiting things. Everyone's walking around wearing a top hat. Uh, you ride around in a horse and cart. It's that kind of thing. The things that are being invented are like stamps and telegrams and people are really into turbines, mechanised production factory lines and sewage systems that actually work for a change. It is a wild time. Okay. Are you with me so far? I think I'm with you. So everyone's Oliver Twist, Sherlock Holmes, top hats... Yeah, yeah you're the scene with me. is set. The scene is set, brilliant. Now, circus at this time in England is actually quite different from what you might expect. Now, there's like, there's still a ring and there's clowns, there's acrobats, animals, juggling, stunts of daring, all that sort of stuff. But it's actually largely done inside buildings, specialist circus buildings, actually. Yeah. yeah. Ones that you might know uh, are Blackpool Tower, that's still yeah. running as well as a specialist circus building, and the Great Yarmouth Hippodrome as well, which was built specifically for circus. It's only just now in the 1840s that we're starting to see big tops and tents coming over from the USA and being used for UK circuses and touring in there as well. Okay, so big tops are new to us at the time. Mm, exactly. Now, one thing that they did do is parades. Parades when the circus comes to town, or in this case in England, before the, the long run of a show in a location would start. Okay. Now, in America, you might have had big parades where like a whole herd of elephants and all your performers, thousands of performers and horses would line the streets. They'd all get mm. arrived by train and then march through the town to like huge crowds. In the UK, not so much. England at the time, they did have big circuses and draw big crowds, but it was much more like stunt-based and they would do ah. things that would draw people to kind of watch a bit of a taster of the show sometimes as well before they were going to do it. Like a big epic spectacle stunt thing. Exactly. Yeah. And some of those things could be like walking a tight wire between the buildings of the street where your circle's going to be mm. performed or doing something really crazy with the animals, like having them all parade up and down and jump through hoops. And one of them uh, I particularly like that I'd like to tell you about today. Okay. And it's, uh, it's a little bit unusual, to say the least. <laughs> so, this stunt was first performed by a man called Dickie Usher. Okay. The old Dickie Usher. <laughs> and this is the 1840s, remember. Back then, he was a popular clown. I don't want you to think of him as a clown like you would nowadays. He wasn't really maybe what you would expect. He was much more what I would liken to, like, stand-ups or, like, mimes or practical jokers, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. He also trained geese and cats and just did really silly, funny Weird. things. He was a bit of a jack-of-all-trades as well. He did a yeah. lot of different things in the circus. 
we would call him a clown nowadays because most of his things were humorous and mm. very silly and unusual. Um, but he actually invented a lot of crazy stunts to be the hype man for these circuses <laughs> coming to town. And um, one of his ones that he's most well known for doing was um, sailing in a bathtub from Westminster, which is in London, all the way to Waterloo Bridge, being wow. pulled by four geese. By geese? By geese. <laughs> okay. Four gooses. Wow. Pulling him along in a bathtub. And this is like How? a tin, this is like a little tin bathtub of the time, like like a little woodeny. They're, they're small. It's not a big white. It's still impressive. It is still impressive. <laughs> These four geese that yes, they have bridles and little harnesses on. They've got reins. They've got reins. He's holding oh, okay. on to them and off he goes. It's quite a long way to sail as well in this yeah, kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, so this became his well-known trick. He actually had a second part to it. He would um, he would get out of his little boat when he reached destination, and he right. wanted to get into a carriage, a very small carriage that was going to be pulled by eight tomcats. Unfortunately, wow. <laughs> the very first time that he tried to do this, the crowds that had gathered to see him perform were so so great that he couldn't do the second part. He, his cats couldn't go down the street. So wow. um, can't imagine the hype. The hype was real. There was a lot of people there. And but what happened is the cats couldn't get through. So some jolly young men from the crowd lifted him and his carriage and his cats up into the air <laughs> and carried them down to the venue. Much to crowd the laughter. Cats. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody loved that. They all followed him down to the venue where the wow. circus was then about to be performed. So it was a success. It was a success in every sense of the way. <laughs> yes, it drew huge crowds and was very popular. And did he ever do it again? Was it just that one time? No, he did actually do it again a few times, and it was copied by lots of other circuses and clowns as well. It became a little bit of the go-to thing to do. Okay. You know, time kind of like how all the celebrities oh, classic, were doing the uh, the ice trope. bucket challenge at one point. Now everyone's doing, oh, you're getting the goose to pull you down the river, are you? Classic it's that move. sort of thing. And one of the most, the guys to make it famous is called Thomas Barry. He's what we would recognise as a white-faced clown, the buffoon clown, really physically like daft with a lot of slapstick. He's kind of our classic clown, one of the most popular at the time. He did that stunt a lot and made it popular for what it was. Okay. Yeah. Got the credit. He got the... Yeah, he did a little bit kind of take the credit away from old Dickie Usher. Mm. But there was another man that performed this stunt at the height of its popularity as well. So, yeah. I mean, I can't describe the crowds that would gather to see someone do this. This guy, Arthur Nelson, another very well-known clown at the time, uh, was due to perform... This stunt in Great Yarmouth for the circus okay. that was performing at the Hippodrome. Yeah. So um, as he prepared to do this, there was a lot of posters, there was a lot of talk, newspapers mm. advertising the fact this stunt was going to be done. Uh, unfortunately, this was the day that disaster was going to strike. Oh no. I know. No, <laughs> what, no. <laughs> what happened? So the crowds that gathered to watch... Arthur Nelson sailed down with his geese were so great that the Yarmouth suspension bridge collapsed under the weight of the people on oh, the bridge. No. Hundreds of people fell into the water amongst the wreckage of the bridge. Oh and it's, it's quite a deep river as well. It's not a little river. It's mm. huge. Unfortunately, 79 people were killed. Jeez. And the vast majority of those, 90% of them, were children. Children between the ages of 2 and oh. 13 years old. It was... They all a, just wanted to see the circus. They all just wanted to see this clown mm. row down the, go down the river with his little geese and tragedy struck. It was very unfortunate. It's still marked in Great Yarmouth to this day. Um, okay. It's a big circus tragedy. This kind of helped fizzle the trick out, unfortunately, 
there are reports of it happening in other countries since the tragedy, but it just sort of peters away and vanishes. Nobody performs it again. Yeah, yeah I know. Which is a great shame, because I think sailing in a bathtub, being pulled by four geese... <laughs> Is hilarious and a would be a, it was a great trick. <laughs> like, why does why no one do it? doing it? Why maybe isn't anyone I, doing it? Maybe I should do it. Oh, if I was to recreate this act, how would I go about it? Now, let me tell you how you do this. There's actually a bit of a trick to this. Even though old Dickie Usher was a trainer of geese and cats, he didn't actually train his geese to pull his bathtub down what? the river. I know. Plot twist. Ah. There's actually a rope running from underwater from a from his bathtub to a boat up in front and That's it was the why. boat that was pulling the bathtub along the geese were merely symbolic i suppose all you, disappointing. all you have to do though if you want to do this trick is to just pretend that your geese were pulling your boat you know okay. wave to people honk some horns some splash acting. about a little bit yeah mm. and the geese would just sort of amble along you've just got to vaguely steer them in the right way and and right the illusion is complete uh. Wow, what a trick. <laughs> what a trick, though, what a and trick. What, how do you come up with that? I don't no. know. The, this guy that invented well, it... he was into geese. He was into geese. I suppose. It was kind of inevitable oh. Inevitable. he was going to do something with geese. People did some crazy stuff in the past. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I don't think you could really get permission nowadays to sail a bathtub mm. pulled by geese down the River nightmare. Thames. Yeah, health and safety would not allow. Well, not, not in this economy. Well, who knew? Who knew? And that is your fun circus story for today. Thank you. I have learned something. That is, that's some good knowledge right there. Beep boop. Thank you for teaching me something. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. We really hope you enjoyed it. Please do tune in again in a fortnight for the next episode. And if you liked it, then tell your friends. You can give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. We're called Not My Monkeys Podcast on both. Please do get in touch and tell us what you liked, what you'd like to hear, and hook us up with all your cool circus connections. Um, you can do that either on Facebook and Instagram, or you can email us at notmymonkeyspodcast at gmail.com. You could support us too on Patreon, uh, if you're feeling generous, by donating an amount that you choose every month to help make this podcast possible. Any amount that you can donate makes a huge difference. It helps keep us going. It pays for things like equipment and recording space and various other things needed to make a podcast. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for a first episode, (laughs) you know, it it is there, maybe.